What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the show. My guest today is Nick, also known as Nobody Caribou on Twitter. Nick is a Bitcoiner, physical therapist, and has been interested in many facets of health for several years, which has recently culminated in his launching of a new podcast with his wife called Jedi Fam. I first spoke with Nick last year during the trucker protest in Canada. He was on the ground providing updates, helping out where he could, and was eventually tasked with the difficult job of getting Bitcoin donations distributed to the truckers. Knowing that I enjoy discussing the impact which Bitcoin seems to be having on the behavior of those who learn about it and adopt it, and with diet and health being, at least for some, one of the major changes, Nick suggested that we get a regular series going to discuss just that, how Bitcoin appears to be impacting people's approach to their health and well-being. We're calling these things Bitcoin health hangs, and we'll likely rope in a couple more people in the future. So if this topic is of particular interest to you, or if you think you might have something valuable to add to such a discussion, feel free to hit me up on Twitter, Nostra, or at BitcoinRapidFire.com. Before we get going, I'd like to quickly thank CoinKite for sponsoring the show. If you're looking for the tools you need to properly custody and secure your Bitcoin, like the best-in-class cold card hardware wallet, steel seed plates, dice sets, and more, CoinKite has what you need. It also has a ton of fun Bitcoin swag for you or that Bitcoiner in your life. Have fun browsing it all at CoinKite.com. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to send some value back, consider listening on Fountain. With Fountain, you can listen to many of your favorite podcasts and stream sats as you listen, or send one-off tips with short messages attached. To get started, you can send sats there from another wallet, you can purchase sats with a bank card, or even earn sats on the platform by listening to promoted clips. To learn more or get started, visit fountain.fm today. Let's do it. There we go. We're live. Uh, so yeah, like we were just saying, we're catching up a little bit. I think the last time we spoke was February 2022, if I'm not mistaken, like right in the thick of the convoy stuff. Is that does that sound right? Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to think that that was like literally what is that, a year and a half ago? That I don't know if crazy. it seems I don't know if it seems like it's it was longer ago or not that long ago, you know, like time is just so warped these days. Combination of one bitcoin time is always warped in a weird way and also the covid years have just kind of thrown off, I think at least mine and I, it seems like a lot of people's sense of of time, but you know, what's what's your life been like? We're just catching up a bit and we'll we'll revisit some of the things we were discussing, but what's your life been like since, you know, that experience? Uh, I think I've chosen just to really reevaluate what matters most to me and only give attention to things that, uh, I care about, which means, you know, anything that is not part of that subset of things that I truly care about, you know, health, family, Bitcoin, and, uh, meaningful work that gives me a sense of purpose and joy and, you know, work that I get to do with people that I like being around, uh, anything outside of that, I've just chosen to not be uh, not give attention to. And so that has radically improved my life. And that was just literally a choice. Cause I think, uh, you know, there's still this ongoing sort of class action lawsuit thing that I'm, is sort of something I'm forced to be uh, aware of, but it's not taking up a whole lot of mind space and, uh, life is good. No complaints. What's, what's the lawsuit? Is it against you and people that were involved in the convoy? Yeah, so it's a class action of City of Ottawa residents who are filing a lawsuit, um, basically with a long list of defendants, anyone who was involved, to try and claim that their quality of life was disrupted and they are owed a bunch of money, whether it's people or businesses. And 
I can't say a whole lot about it right now because I just right. don't know what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not allowed to say. But I think it's, um, you know, it's up for certification, I believe, in the new year. And uh, when it's when the dust settles with that, and I'm pretty confident that we have a really good team and good strategy and uh, Give Send Go has essentially stepped in and really like basically taken the lead to um, seek justice and get and and stop this thing from getting certified. Uh, but when all the dust settles, uh, I'm looking forward to telling like the whole story of what actually happened and all the detail, all the juicy details. I took a lot of I take a lot of notes. So every day that I was there, I took field notes on my phone and uh, I'm going to compile them all, probably give them to someone who, you know, has expressed interest in writing something, um, giving people the full details of every, like there's so many little things that happened that were very interesting that just aren't, it's just not the time to talk about it yet. But mm -hmm. uh, since then, uh, life has been good. So, well, yeah. we, one of the reasons, or maybe the main reason we, we wanted to get together today is because we both share one, I think a mutual interest in health, broadly speaking, you know, a human optimization, if you'd like to call it that, but also the degree to which the values, the principles, again, broadly construed the perspective that Bitcoin seems to bestow on people, how that influences one's view of health. And I, I just, the last podcast I published actually was with Remnant MD, so-called, and he's a, a medical doctor who again, is starting to see things through a more Bitcoin-focused lens and recapitulating both, you know, what his profession is, what he learned in school, and to try to, you know, uh, cater it or to revamp it in a manner that's consistent with Bitcoin principles and how that might, and he's been writing about his thoughts and stuff like that, and, and he shared his experiences during COVID, which were, as you might expect, uh, ridiculous on many levels. Uh, but before we, you know, dive into some of that today, I am just curious because when we last spoke, again, right in the middle of the, the convoy stuff, you were busy, you know, you were running around like doing a lot of things on the ground in the in the in Ottawa, you know, helping people get supplies and, you know, helping, you know, the vibe stay high. And of course, then there was a Bitcoin component. Um, and you were seemingly, you know, very happy to be doing all that. It was the 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 mood seemed to be very positive. On the one hand, you had, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau and the corporate media, you know, trying to slander and and call this like, you know, an evil, you know, Nazi, all the normal sh shit, right? N Nazis and racists and all this kind of stuff. And then on the ground and on the, you know, so-called alternative media, all you were seeing was camaraderie and love and support. And you were you know, when I spoke to you, that was very evident that that's what you were feeling. You were kind of high on that. And aside from whatever the lawsuit entails, and I know you can never speak too much about that kind of stuff. What was it like, you know, to have gone through that experience? What was the come down like when, you know, all the, all the trucks left and you were kind of just left with the memory of that experience and the residue of it? And how did you, you know, determine how you were going to move forward? You know, because we, we spoke just before and you just alluded to it, like, I think we all, you know, all Bitcoiners and a lot of other people that just trying to orient themselves in this kind of new world post during and post COVID, you had to find a way to deal with the frustration, the absurdity, the, you know, all the challenges that came with like basically most people in the world, you know, falling victim to a type of psychosis, hysteria, whatever you want to call it. And how did, you know, sane individuals or at least individuals that thought themselves sane uh how are they supposed to deal with that you know and on the one hand there's 
there is a lot of frustration, anger, and all the actions that can stem from that, but those aren't typically speaking very healthy, right? Those aren't conducive to your own betterment. Those aren't conducive to, you know, pursuing the things that are meaningful to you. So there had to be this refocusing on, okay, what are the things that I, that are meaningful to me, important to me, valuable to me that I can focus on that are actually going to generate a positive impact in my life and the life of others, rather than just railing against all the craziness that's, that's happening. Um, and so what was, you know, what was it like for you post convoy and, you know, all of that leading up to this point? Yeah, it was, um, have you ever read the book by Sebastian Younger? I think it's his name about how, about, um, basically military people that come back from war and actually get depressed despite coming like, if you haven't read it, it's a really interesting I've heard, book to read. I don't know. I haven't read it, but I've heard that I've heard a summary of it. I know. What you're yeah. And the, the, I guess the irony that I took from that book was that like, you know, these guys go to war, they see people die. It's a very intense, chaotic, um, sort of context. And then they come back from that and they actually get depressed. And it's like, how can you be depressed now that you're back from war? Isn't that a good thing? And what they all kind of realize is like the camaraderie and the connection that they have with their fellow soldier and the purpose that they have in looking out for each other actually gave them this deep sense of belonging. And then when they come back into the non-war world, they actually miss that and they crave to go back to it. So it's this kind of like irony where it's like, you know, the chaos is chaotic, but also when you're out of the chaos and you're missing all those connection ingredients, it's actually less meaningful. And it's actually more painful being out of that. So I think I felt a lot of that because after the convoy, I kind of got uh, very depressed with life in general of like, wow, you know, there's this big peak of hope. People come together, people who are literally going to claim their freedom. You meet all these amazing humans. And then you just have this wave of crackdown where, uh, you know, the state turns anyone who is pro-freedom into their enemy and does everything they can in their will and power to crack down on those people and silence them. Uh, and I got a, a bunch of that as well. So it was kind of a depressing time. Um, but I think all, if I think through all the times in my life where I've had like this depression in my mood or state and sense of lack of clarity and lack of purpose, the pain experience from that has always led to creative insights or clarity that allows me to then, uh, have the total opposite end of the pendulum where it's like, I, I double down on things that matter most, uh, you know, the process of eliminating everything that doesn't align with those values begins and then it clears the path to just awesomeness in life. And so that happened to me. Um, and I met my now wife in like September, uh, of last year. And yeah, life has just really taken a turn for the better now that I've gotten clarity on what actually matters. Um, and you know, I think the more that I learn about Bitcoin and integrate Bitcoin into my life, the more I by de facto begin to live more in alignment with Bitcoin, the more my time preference is lowered, the more I really get a firm understanding of what is most important and how do I radically eliminate anything that is not part of that group of important things that I've made a decision matter most in my life. So yeah, it was kind of a roller coaster of really intense, really awesome, polar end of the spectrum, really sort of like depressing and lacking purpose and meaning and drive. Um, and coming off of the high of just having like blasts of dopamine and oxytocin by being around people who are just genuinely loving, nice, and are there to claim their freedom. Like, I don't think freedom's ever given. I think you, you actually have to claim your freedom. And that's what all those people in Ottawa did. Um, and part of, you know, like 
the the act of meeting my now wife uh, and moving out of Ottawa was actually a major step in a positive direction because I think Ottawa is like the belly of the beast when you think of like the den of fiat. Ottawa is that for Canada, um, and I think that's part of why you know there's all these people that live around downtown who can afford the really expensive prices to live there. Most of them have fiat job. Most of them work for the state, literally. So they get paid a lot of fiat to do things that, in my opinion, aren't that valuable for society. And no surprise that, you know, they didn't like the people who were putting up a fuss to their boss. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it just didn't align with me. The energy of Ottawa is kind of like Ottawa spit me out because it just wasn't in alignment with the values of freedom and free speech and what I, it didn't align with the type of place that I wanted to live in. So moved out of there to a very small place, quiet, lots of nature near water. And uh, since then it's literally just been better and better. It's like the better it gets, the better it gets, it seems. And the more space <laughs> and time I have to um, learn about Bitcoin and learn about health. Those are really the two important, the two things that are you know, my health is most important. Supporting my family is second. Third is Bitcoin. And then fourth is work outside of Bitcoin that I do. And that radical prioritization and having a tool to really evaluate and audit, like, am I actually living in alignment with that, which requires me to know where my time is going and where my money is going, um, has just created a level of clarity that I never knew I uh, could be possible that I've never had before. And uh, has just gradually chipped away at my time preference to now I'm like the things I do today, uh, and next week are really sort of placed within the context of where I want to be and what I want to be doing in like five or 10 years. So I think for me, it's allowed me to just be way calmer, to be way more immune to the chaos of the world by literally just having some tech self-defense and having tools to recognize tech creep where it's like, Sometimes I go into Twitter and I get, or X, and I get sort of overwhelmed with all the information that comes in there. Uh, and so I kind of just treat it like cold exposure now where it's like, get in, get out, <laughs> reground, re spend time in nature, be outside, be in the sun, be around cool people, connecting uh, through movement. I play a lot of pickleball these days. So the idea that I can go and have no phone, play pickleball, share stories, hear about uh, what's going on in other people's lives. Um, and maybe even channel some of those pain points back to money and orange pill people in a soft way. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy. That's awesome to hear, man. Um, and you just for people that don't know the full story, I mean, you got swept up into the convoy stuff simply by virtue of, you know, basically being a freedom oriented Bitcoiner in Ottawa at the time. And so when all this started happening, you were just like, well, I want to be involved and I want to, you know, I want to help in any way that I can or be a part of this thing. And, and that was it, right? That's, is that, that's how you became involved? Yeah. My thought was like, I live 40 minute walk or lived a 40 minute walk from downtown. And, uh, you know, after looking into like, first I wondered like, why are these people even coming to Ottawa from all over the country? Like, what is their why? Um, and after I realized these are all people that really are for freedom, I realized, well, I wonder if these people know about freedom money because freedom, freedom, I don't think can actually be achieved without an understanding and application of freedom money, mm -hmm. which I think was shown really blatantly with the convoy when people's uh, donations were shut down and when people's bank accounts were shut down, even it's like, that was, that was one of the be most beautiful mass orange pilling moments by maybe the most powerful Bitcoin marketing agency in Canada, which is the state 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I was just like, you know, I may as well go. As I walk into Ottawa, I basically walk by all these trucks. I was like, I'm just going to start knocking on some cab doors and see if they know about Bitcoin. And if they don't, see if they want to learn. You know, they're not really doing a whole lot. They're just chilling, sitting there um, and talk to a lot of truckers. And they were very open to Bitcoin because they understood the freedom aspect. And when it was, you know, basically the, the line that I used was Bitcoin is the separation of money and state. If you use Canadian dollars, you are still to some extent going to be governed by the state, regardless of how much you don't like what they're doing. Uh, and Bitcoin is the stateless money without an issuer that actually provides financial freedom. And uh, I just really enjoyed that. And, you know, started to find out like what do, I started to ask truckers what they needed um, just so I could help in any way. And truckers are very resourceful. So most of them say nothing. So I started to ask the question, when you are going to need something, what are you going to need? And they started saying things like, you know, bathrooms would be nice. I have to walk all the way here to go to the bathroom. And it was like winter. It was cold uh, or coffee in the morning or a fresh pair of socks, like really simple things or cigarettes or whatever. So I just tried to make myself useful. And at one point I said, you know, this freedom movement might align with Bitcoiners. Uh, why don't I create a wallet to see if Bitcoiners want to donate? And then I'll figure out a way to allocate those funds and do what I can to support on the ground based on what the needs are. And uh, yeah. Then it's kind of like this blur of, <laughs> holy shit, we raised 21 Bitcoin and we don't know what to do with it. And now mm. we are enemies of the state and, you know, I got to protect myself. And it just kind of, it got a bit crazy. I think the end result ended up being um, pretty good on, when all things are considered. Uh, imperfect, but also under the, con- under the circumstances and the constraints that we had, I think it ended up actually being uh, pretty good overall. So we got 14 Bitcoin to truckers. If it wasn't for like a little tech glitch, we would have gotten all 21 Bitcoin or maybe 19 to 20 Bitcoin out of the 21 to truckers. So, so yeah, I uh, unintentionally took an impossible job for the most critical group of smart people on the planet. And uh, I feel good about the way I acted. And I think that's really all that matters to me. So, yeah, I, again, I don't know how much you can talk about. So if you, if you can't discuss something, you just tell me, but um, cause I remember how it went down, you know, all this Bitcoin was coming in and then, uh, there was some dispute in the, from the donors, let's say some felt that it should be kept as like a, a war chest fund for, you know, doesn't need to be deployed necessarily right now. Others felt that, uh, it should be, and I, I don't know where they fell under the assumption that they were promised that it would be, but that seemed to be the the feeling at the time. And so there was this initiative by you and others to distribute the funds. And, you know, you did so in a way that you guys thought best. And so when you're those Bitcoin that were distributed to your knowledge, and again, don't share anything that you can't, but were, were they able to be kept by the truckers who received them and, you know, used to some effect? So, for my sake and for the trucker's sake, I didn't actually keep in contact with any of the truckers. I didn't have their phone numbers um, right. and I didn't communicate with them. I just kind of trusted that, you know, the explanation I gave and the information contained in the envelope was everything they needed to understand what they had. And it was up to them to use it how they see fit. Uh, someone in the Bitcoin community did create a tracker where you can actually see how many of those uh, wallets have been transacted with or used or whatnot, which is kind of a cool way um, to see under the hood, what's happening with those. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how many of them 
you know, what I told some of them was, you know, if you have kids, hold this envelope, keep it safe. Don't let it burn or get wet. And uh, by the time your kid has to go to school, maybe what's in there covers university tuition by the time they go. Like this is the power of money that can't be debased. And that is more scarce than anything else relative to anything else. So I don't know, but I think my hope is that over time, um, you know, when all the dust settles and we can actually start to reach out to some of these uh, truckers that we can make contact with all of them and see what they did with it and tell the story after the fact of how useful was this? What did you do with it? Uh, if, if you want to say, and you know, was it helpful? Cause at the end of the day, it didn't actually help them stay in Ottawa any longer. Mm -hmm. It sort of just acted as a gift to say, thank you for standing up for freedom. Here's a token of appreciation from the freedom community around the world. And that's kind of actually how I started to view the sats that came in for these truckers was every Satoshi was an unstoppable vote for freedom. It was a vote that actually couldn't be stopped. And it was a vote that was visibly mattered. Uh, and, you know, 21 Bitcoin, what is that? 2.1 billion, mm -hmm. 2.1 mm -hmm. billion votes for freedom came in from all around the world. And I remember spitting off a few things that were written in the tally coin. Like there was literally, a, I remember this one significantly. There was a doctor from Nigeria who sent 200 sats to say, <laughs> go freedom. And like, that's crazy that's awesome. that yeah. someone in Africa who's part of this global monetary network sent a fraction of a penny as a vote that freedom mattered to them. And no one could stop that. Uh, no one could censor it. And some of those sats are held by truckers who were there on the ground and sacrificed in order to take a stand for being heard and for saying that, you know, th those people were there to protect them, their families and other Canadians from the crazy stuff that was going on that most people didn't see. Mm -hmm. And I think in hindsight, it's becoming more and more clear that that stuff was very wrong. Um, so that was cool to me. And I think, I don't know if a millionth of all Bitcoin in existence will ever be raised again for um, a protest, just considering the direction of Bitcoin's price. So I think it was a pretty cool thing that maybe will only land fully like in five years, maybe. Mm. But um, it was the hardest and the most meaningful thing I've maybe ever done in my life to date. So on, th on that note, it was pretty special. And sometimes I go back in and read some of my notes and look at some of the pictures and videos I took. And it kind of gives me chills and sometimes brings tears to be like, mm. you know, it's in the weekly news cycle, it's so easy to forget what happened a month ago. Uh, and I think that it was just such an extraordinary experience. It was surreal, frankly, John. And uh, yeah, I look forward to compiling everything, all the pictures, photos, notes that I took in one day, being able to sort of tell the truth uh, when it doesn't put me under threat. So right. I, I know that day will come. It's just I'm low time preference with it. And uh, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, I bet. I look forward to, to reading that someday. But, you know, I, I remember going to the TallyCoin site and reading all the messages that came through with the donations and just feeling like, because to, to be honest, I didn't think Canadians had it in them. You know, I saw, we all saw what was going on up there. Absolutely insane as it was in many places to be fair, but you know, Canada was probably one of the worst. And, um, I just thought, well, Canadians are mostly docile. They're going to let this happen. There's not going to be many people that poke their heads up and, you know, complain or, or do anything about it. And then there was this groundswell, a massive groundswell of of people in the truckers that came together and said, 
we're going to try to protest in the best way we know how, peacefully and respectfully, but we're going to make it known that we disagree with what's happening and we're going to try to you know, put our foot down in, in a way. And obviously it turned into this massive phenomenon and it's difficult to draw direct lines, you know, cause and effect of what happened in that time. But it's entirely conceivable that that effort helped shorten the period that that insanity was going on and changed, obviously, hearts and minds of a lot of people. And so who knows what impact that had at the time and who knows what impact that's going to have in the future. You know, um, hopefully it sets some it set and will continue to set some of a tone somewhat of a tone for people in Canada that, you know, if you stand up for truth and freedom and the values and principles upon which the country is supposedly founded, then there will be, you, you, there's more people that feel that way than you might think. And yeah. all you have to do is have the courage to, to stand up for them. And you might be surprised by how many people join you and what kind of impact that can have. And I think that's, that was one of the, the prime benefits of the protest. Um, what, you know, I don't want to spend too much longer on it, but what was it like when the party was over, basically? So I don't I don't know the precise precisely what happened. I remember there's some very tense moments at uh, the border crossing, I believe, as well as in Ottawa, Emergencies Act invoked. And then it all became like, well, if something doesn't happen, this is going to turn violent, perhaps, or the state is going to turn violent and then who knows what happens. And so at some point there was a there was a decision made to pack up and go home. What was the the mood like when that was happening and everyone just decided and and did they feel like it was a success or a failure or you know what was the general sentiment when everyone was packing up and going home? Um, one thing most people don't know is that the Coots border crossing and the uh, the bridge border crossing were actually independent uncoordinated emergent effects. So they were not part of, it was not what, this big coordinated thing. They were these emergent immune reactions that were happening at different places, which, you know, if people knew that, and actually the other ones, the non-Ottawa ones were resolved through police negotiations. Like they were resolved through channels that are appropriate to resolve these things, right? At the local level, in context, uh, didn't require a national emergency to resolve. Um, and, so, which, which is interesting because a lot of the dialogue and rhetoric that was pushed out by the state was actually saying the bridge crossing is threatening our economy. We must declare a national emergency. When in reality, that was a totally separate thing and was resolved before the emergency was declared, which I think gets muddied in the kind of like maelstrom of confusion and lies. And one thing I Wait, found you're, you're, that, you're suggesting the government lied or misrepresented the truth. That's no, I wouldn't suggest such a thing, John. They're, they're clearly <laughs> tell the truth all the time. Um, one thing I found especially interesting was I was 40 minute walk from downtown. And so I would go into town in the morning, in, in downtown in the morning, and I would come home at night. And sometimes I would go grab a coffee in the morning before going back downtown. And a 40 minute walk away, you had people that thought the truckers were terrible people because they had been looking at the news. And I would tell these people like, just literally it's 40 minute walk from here. Take a couple hours, go see for yourself. And the amount of people who just didn't have the courage to go and see the truth for themselves and that were living in this bubble that was architected by state media was astonishing, mm. right? Because if mm -hmm. you actually went there and saw what reality was, and then you saw what the state was putting on the media, they look like totally different things. And I think it really 
and it really brought to light how much manipulation there is and how much that manipulation determines people's concept of truth and reality, yeah. even just an hour from the epicenter, an hour out from that. It was like, it was pretty crazy. That yeah. for me was just this, you know, so hard to reconcile that like, how does this happen? How do we allow this to happen? How is the state allowed to have full control over the perception of what our country thinks? And then, it, but it also gave me more compassion for understanding this is how people are so misinformed mm -hmm. and it allowed me to feel like a sense of like you know they weren't my the people who are misinformed and shitting on these freedom loving people uh were not my enemy they were just misinformed and it wasn't so i think that helped me sort of like live in ottawa after and during uh because i really saw the the, the difference between those two things so I remember on the last day, so I had gone out in like different rounds to deliver these envelopes. And on the last day, it was a night run. And actually, I, I was kind of worried walking around with all these envelopes. Right, um, right. And so my strategy on the last night, because it was especially at night where it's like someone could just jab me, take all the things and run. And it's like, that could be a sketchy situation. So there were people walking around gathering garbage. So what I did was I uh, took a bunch of paper, squashed it all up, put it in a garbage bag, and then put the envelopes in the middle. So it looked like I was walking around with a garbage bag. But there were envelopes with, you know, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin in this garbage bag. So I was like, it was funny because I had all this, but I felt invisible because no one really would think twice about a dude walking around with a garbage bag. Right. Um, but on the last night, there was a lot of, you could sense like a loss of hope. So essentially the state and the police had kind of been putting out all these waves of threats saying like your truck is going to be impounded you're going to be arrested your life's going to be ruined like all of these things and so there's like you could feel it in there on the last night it was palpable the next day they were going to come in with this giant force um there were all these threats truckers were very deflated concerned and only the hardcore ones were still there so i think there were some pretty deep conversations had with some of those truckers because i wasn't in a rush it was my last night it was like i'm just going to go until all these envelopes are out so i would go into some of the cabs chat with them and just get a sense of like how are you feeling like are you okay you know what are you worried about all this kind of stuff so there was a lot of fear the next day they basically just came in and quite honestly just used straight up violence against peaceful people who are just holding their ground doing nothing illegal and that was like one of the nastiest things that I saw was just literally people being physically violated for just standing their ground saying, we want to be heard. Um, so yeah. And then they basically had special forces go around, smash windows, haul people out, arrest them for, I don't know what, I guess the law changed and in a national emergency where that was declared because peaceful people were doing nothing illegal. Um, you know, they were just hauled out of their trucks and the trucks were towed. So it was, Wow. It was kind of depressing to see that, to be like, wow, you know, at first I was like, wow, you really can do nothing against the state. They have the monopoly on violence. They have the guns. They can make law, whatever laws they want to remove people who are not agreeing with them. But I think the silver lining was the goal was never to beat them. Like we're never going to overpower the state. Right. The goal is show how badly they will cheat. When yeah. faced with people who don't agree with them and who are law abiding, peaceful, show the extent that they will go to, to cheat, to get rid of these people and to silence any alternative opinions. And in that respect, we won big time because yeah. 
they closed down bank accounts. They, you know, they used violence against peaceful protesters and, and the media didn't have to show it because everyone has a cell phone. And this is mm-hmm. one of the things that was reiterated, you know, every day was people will go up on the microphone and say, you are the media. You must take videos. You must put it into social media, put the truth out there. Cause if you don't, it won't get out there. And so there's all this content on people's cell phones that eventually will be accumulated and put into a documentary of some sort or just presented in a way that people can actually see the truth. And so, yeah, I think um, that gave me sort of a sense of it wasn't a loss. It wasn't all for nothing. Uh, Ironically, after that, things started to really shift in a better direction in Canada. And the the running joke was, but it's not because of the truckers. Mm -hmm. It's like the mandates got dropped, but it wasn't because of the truckers. You know, masks weren't pushed anymore. It wasn't because of the truckers. But a lot did change. If you actually look, if you actually zoom out and look at what was the state of Canada, where were we, what were all the things that were being done, you know, BC and AC before convoy, after convoy, like there's a significant shift in the momentum and the direction things are going. And so I think it had a much bigger effect than what people might realize. Um, And so I think it was a really big victory knowing that the goal was just to show how corrupt they were not to actually beat them. So, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that even at the time, because I don't know if anyone thought like, you know, even if anyone knew what the end game was, like maybe there was an explicit like end the mandates as a, as a sort of request. But I think the more realistic one was, as you said, like show getting the the state to show what they're really like, you know, their yeah. true nature to show their hand. Exactly. And I feel like they did that. And, you know, so much was shown and that, you know, COVID was a mad, horrible time for so many people and for so many reasons. But there was a lot of silver linings like, I, you know, the world we're in today. And we have to remember, even the alternative media at that time was way more censorious than it is now. You know, Elon for all of his faults and X for all of its future plans and whatever they may be. At least now you can you can say more things. You know, you can you're not banned for every little thing. You know, if you said anything that was counter to the status quo narrative or the establishment narrative, you were gone. Banned, silenced, shadow banned, ghosted, you know, whatever on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, everywhere. So like the the narrative was very much all encompassing. And there was very, it was very difficult to penetrate that in any real way. So, you know, it, it was hard to get that message out. So those people that you were referring to, you know, that live 40 minutes away from the the convoy. I mean, I I uh it's still their responsibility to be informed. And so I I don't uh you know I I don't let them get I'm not off giving on, them a pass. Right. I'm not giving it. them a pass on that. But there's there's a degree of you, you can understand how it how it came that way. You know, for for example, the CB all the, the mainstream media news outlets in Canada, right? They they zero in on so you've got all of Canada at you know uh, highway bridges down in Ottawa with I love Canada, love and respect, peace, you know, dancing together, like thousands and thousands of instances of that. And then you have a Confederate flag you know, on the scene one time or Nazi flag, can't remember what it was. And, you know, arson in a apartment building in Ottawa, I think that was completely unrelated, but those two things were zeroed in on. And then for a certain cohort of people that paints a, a brush on the entire thing, which is right. absolutely ridiculous. And that's why they shouldn't get a pass for, you know, forming their perspective or opinion in that way. But a lot of people do because they become habitu- habituated and conditioned to to do just that. Say, okay, it came out of the the magic box, like it must be true. Now I, I bring up the example of the movie The Network, 1970s movie, all the time. Because are you familiar with that? 
I'm not, but I think oh, I need oh, to watch man. it now that you dropped it. You got to <laughs> watch it. I'll, there's some great links on YouTube of like the main, um, you know, monologues of, of the main character. But anyways, it's a news anchor and he kind of goes crazy and he goes on these amazing rants about how people are just so like uh, hopelessly dependent on the opinion that comes out of the tube, right? Out, out of the TV. And that, you know, that you, you dress like the tube, you think like the tube, everything like there's no like it's the most powerful force in the universe, basically, because it can literally deliver reality to you or at least, you know, what it delivers to you, you take as reality. And so, you know, that apparatus combined with how much everything else was being censored, it was difficult to get to get the message out. And even now, you know, the part of the silver lining is it got re reached such a apex the, the richest man in the world, again, for whatever faults you, you think he may have, he was like, too much. So I'm going to just drop $44 billion on making sure that there's an outlet where people can speak more freely, if not totally freely. Um, and then also, like, because of this mask off moment for the status quo establishments, be they media, political, corporate, or otherwise, a lot of people around the world today are like, hold on, things don't work the way I thought they worked. So what's yeah. going on? And I find that, you know, because pre-COVID, I mean, us Bitcoiners were in a fairly small bubble in terms of like having taken the red pill and then an orange pill chaser and, and calling out some of the craziness of the world, but largely a minority. But now it really seems like the pendulum is beginning to swing. And I think it's largely because of that mask off moment, moment for everyone during COVID where people are realizing they were lied to. They put too much faith and trust in the institutions of society, whatever they may be. They they weren't in control enough of their own perspective. They didn't appreciate enough, you know, the values and principles that make allow a society to flourish and how violating them has the opposite effect, all those things. And so it's, it is, I mean, I, I think we're in a, I'm excited by the place we're in now because so many more people are now at least asking the questions. I mean, there's still many answers to be determined, right? We will always be uh, determining some of these answers. But at least now people are, are asking the question. They're saying, hold up, like, how did that happen? And what's going on? And maybe things have gotten a little too far in terms of the power concentrated in certain places and the incentives that are that guide most of that behavior, you know, and all that stuff that we usually talk about. And so I'm uh, incredibly opt optimistic. And so as bad as it was, and as frustrated as I was with everything that was going on at the time, I think it was like a pretty, you know, a, an inflection point in how a lot of people in the world think about the world that they're in, you know, again, be it the governance models, they're subject to the corporate interests that they're being conditioned by, and everything, you know, the money that they're forced to use all that kind of stuff. And that's a good thing. I think that's going to lead to a better place. I would agree. And I think it's, you know, the momentum shift can be subtle, but it's not an insignificant shift, mm. right? And it's almost like, you know, I look back at COVID, the period of COVID, and I think of it like a, like a fever, right? You have this disease festering and it's slowly consuming more and more energy, creating more and more pain. Uh, and then you have this period that is just miserable and shocking and painful. Um, but it's better to have the fever than to die. Mm. And it's almost like COVID was the fever 
that humanity needed to induce enough pain to nudge people to change and also to build this immune layer like this a higher immunity to bullshit and to lies that essentially is exists thereon right so i think you're right it's like people are starting to question they might not change their minds immediately on things but the mm -hmm. domino the first domino has fallen where people are more open to questioning the reality they thought was 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 truth and now they're mm -hmm. like well that wasn't true and i saw for a fact that this conflicts with that and i've now learned that that is that wasn't how i thought it was what else isn't how i thought it was right. and they start with these like little small steps and then they get into asking bigger questions and bigger questions and and eventually everyone reaches their own personal inflection point where they're like well fuck, i gotta start all over i gotta start thinking for myself i gotta start taking owner taking some responsibility for truth and reality and everyone gets there at different at a different pace and at a different time but I think if there was one big nudge to everyone, like a shot that was heard around a lot of the world, I think the COVID period accelerated the changes that needed to happen in order for us to not die. And it might have been very painful, but I think the immune adaptation that comes from that is exactly what we needed uh, and is, is only making us stronger and more resilient today. So yeah. I think it's, um, it's all good. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not at the time, but I think when we look back, you know, everything that happens ends up being good if you take a long enough time horizon. And uh, yeah, so I'm optimistic about the future. Way more people understand the implications, at least in my immediate environment, the implications of using money that is under control of the state um, than, than did before COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think even just that is like a big force to bump people out of the matrix or at least make people question the matrix a little bit more than they used to. Yeah, totally agree. Um, well, let's, let's make it more personal now. So we, we kind of started off this way, but you've, after coming out of the convoy experience, you know, kind of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and then you had to determine, you know, kind of how you wanted to move forward, focus on what was meaningful and, and beneficial to you and, you know, constitute your life that way and seems to be working out, you know, extremely well. So you and your wife, I didn't know this until recently, but you guys started a podcast recently, basically on the subject of health and wealth through a Bitcoin lens, or at least, you know, infused with Bitcoin uh, along the way. And so, and I've on Twitter, you know, you're talking about that a lot these days, you're asking people like, you know, what does health or fitness mean to them? So why, why this track for you? Why is it meaningful? And, you know, hit me with your, your thoughts about it all. Let's dig in. Yeah, I think um, I really started to view, I mean, as a as someone who's involved with Bitcoin, I'm sure you can relate that you can't help but see everything through a Bitcoin lens eventually. Right. And I had this like turning point in December of 2021, this realization, like I'm formally trained as a physical therapist. I think you know, within the past three or four years, I realized what we actually label as healthcare is actually disease care. Mm -hmm. And the disease care system, which revolves around diagnosing and treating symptoms of disease, actually has nothing to do with health uh, and is very high time preference, right? I'm in pain now. I want relief right now. I don't care to actually solve the problem. The system and the financial incentives in the disease care world all align with the fiat mindset of high time preference, relief now, not actually doing the work to figure out the problem. So 
you know, I think the two things that are most important, because now that we're, we're about to have um, a kid. And I, so I've been sort of thinking like, what are the most important things for a kid to learn and understand in order to live a fruitful, enjoyable life as an adult? And the two things I constantly come back to are health and money, because the two things that govern a lot of our quality of life, and they're the two things you can't opt out of, even if you wanted to. And so I've really just created like this hard constraint in my life where like, I want to learn about health and Bitcoin and specifically, or health and money, which, you know, I believe Bitcoin is the best form of money. So it kind of leads to Bitcoin, but just money in a broad sense. And it's almost like the way I view it now is the world we're leaving was medicine and finance. And they're built around the idea that health is too complex for you to learn. Therefore, you must listen to the experts. Money is too complex for you to learn. You must listen to the experts. And so it it really revolved around this disempowering forfeiting of responsibility, giving that responsibility to someone else. But what if those people actually aren't learning or don't understand the thing they're giving you advice on, right? If people in the finance world understand finance, but not money, and the people in the medical world understand disease care, but not health, maybe those experts of the old world don't have much utility or, or useful advice to give in the new world, where I believe health is about understanding how to take care of yourself. So you don't have to rely on the medical system. It's not, not to never use it, but you're not fully reliant and at the, at the mercy of the medical people who diagnose and treat disease. Um, and in the new world, understanding money makes you not have to rely on the world people in finance. Um, right. It's like the less, you know, about something, the more you have to rely on trusting someone who you're told does understand that. Mm -hmm. And I think what people are gradually learning is that disease care doesn't have anything to do with health and finance is kind of a scam in the world of fiat. And it turns out that understanding money and saving and sound money is really all you have to focus on. So, so that's what the podcast called Jedi fam is all about. And it's really just about sort of sharing the cheat codes we've discovered in our own personal experience in health and money and having deeper discussions to really unpack, like what is health? What is money? What does it mean to be wealthy? That's something I've been really thinking of is like, you know, how do people define wealth? What does being wealthy mean, uh, you know, in this new world that we're moving into. And, um, yeah, I just, I love having productive conversations about the topic of health with people who are actively engaged with the process of health. Um, you know, I want to have conversations about health and money with people that are already living in the new world. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of conversations happen about health and money, but they're actually done within the context of the old world where people are still talking about finance and investing and bonds and all that stuff. And people in the medical world are still talking about diets and treatments and all this kind of stuff. And I think, I craved conversations that really were anchored in simple frameworks that empowered people to take responsibility. And so I wanted to have those conversations and put them out to the world. And uh, I think the idea of like a regular health hang, like I think Bitcoiners actually have the capacity to be the healthiest people because Mm. they are, they take the most responsibility. They save their time in a tool that doesn't steal from them. Therefore they will have the time to have discussions, to learn and to, you know, they want truth. And they're plugged into this truth machine that is ushering them more and more to truth. So 
yeah, I think just the idea of having conversations about health to unpack that and share experiences really appeals to me. So yeah. uh, that's why I was grateful that you're interested in chatting today. Yeah, well, we didn't even mention that, but hopefully this is one of many where we'll rope in other people and like, you know, have broader discussions about Bitcoin and health, because I totally agree. I mean, one, it's just what I've observed over the last two or three years that, you know, Bitcoin, as you say, are plugged into this truth machine and it it permeates their perspective. So whatever it lands on, there, there's a seeking for truth. And in the realm of health, you know, that seems to be the case as well. And so obviously there's going to be many different approaches, a lot of experiment, exper experimentation, but the punchline is, is that, you know, this group of people seems to be one, well, very concerned about their health. They want to optimize it. And I'd say at least one of the reasons for that is, you know, if you, if you have a, a, a hopeless view of the future, right? If the future is just gray and dark and nothing, you know, great is on the horizon, why would you try to uh, develop a greater, greater vitality, greater health, all that kind of stuff. Cause really what health is, or at least an aspect of it is your capacity and your potential to do X, whatever X might be. And so if you think the world is fucked and there's no hope, what, you know, what inspiration or motivation is there to enhance your capacity to do something? If you think there's not going to be anything for you to do anyways, right. Yeah. But if you do have a hopeful vision for the future, you're inspired and you're motivated. And especially like if you have that bright orange vision for the future, which is us, you know, perhaps the most hopeful vision for the future there has ever been, then it seems obvious that it's going to inspire and motivate you to want to conform yourself to that vision in, in, in such a way that it allows you to access it or contribute to it in, you know, if not the maximal possible way, but in a, in a greater way. And so that, requires you to make the necessary changes to make sure that you have the capacity to do so. Uh, so I think that's one of the reasons why Bitcoiners are so interested and motivated about health. The other one or another aspect is there's so much distrust, right? Once you put the truth lenses on, you look around and say, oh my God, look at the incentives in this medicine, the medical system. Look at how ridiculous all of this advice has been and the conditioning and the influence of pharma and you know we could go on for hours of the list of how it's all so fucked uh i'm gonna i need to recapitulate it around truth you know i need to really understand this better and and bitcoiners are obviously both temperamentally and financially and in other ways equipped to have the opportunity or the capacity to do that and uh Again, that's that's been my experience observing all this. Is is there's a there's a there's a hunger and there's an interest in revisiting all this stuff. And you know, that's another we, we talk about the mask off moment of of COVID. You know, I saw this uh, video yesterday, I think, and I, I think it was actually new, which is just bonkers. But you know, for some people, they're still living in the paradigm of two years ago. And it was like let's say twenty doctors, and you know presumably real because they put their names down at the bottom and it was an advertisement for the booster, I believe. And the whole, ad, the whole thing was just going from like one, one doctor to the next, to the next, to the next. And they were all just saying, trust us, trust us. Like it goes to the next one, trust us, the next one, so trust cringy. us, the next one. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's so cringy, but it's also like, these are the same people that were doing hash, you know, hashtag science two years ago. How is that? You know, how is that science? You know, and you still have these people just saying, trust us, safe and effective, you know, the, like the MPC meme where you just put in the chip and it's like, trust us, safe and effective, trust us, safe and effective. And that's not how people are supposed to make decisions. 
at, at least if they want to make decisions that are in their best interest, right? You're supposed to take it upon yourself to determine what's best for you. And if you're going to want to do that, you're going to have to put in some legwork, right? So you're going to have to consult the scientific evidence of whatever it is you're you're pursuing. In this case, the the efficacy or safety of vaccines, and then make a determination, risk benefit analysis, whatever, whether it's worthwhile for yourself. But it's it's, and I think a lot of people that's part of the mask off moment. So they they see this, and most people, if, at least if you read the comments on Twitter, you know they have some kind of a rea reaction like you just had, like that it's cringy or it's ridiculous. Or then, you know, they they post, you know, any of the number of statistical analysis that have been done since then to show that you probably shouldn't trust these people. Um, but again, that's one of the, the silver linings that people are now saying, no, that's not how we're going to do things anymore. We're not just going to trust you because you showed up with a lab coat and told me to do something. That's just not how this works. And I respect myself too much and my family and my, you know, the things that are meaningful to me to make my decisions that way. And that, you know, that's a great thing. So I think it's great that you guys started that, you know, a pod to investigate these things a bit more deeply. And to your question, I'd love to get your, your take on it. You said, you know, one of the things you've been thinking about a lot is what is wealth? Well, what is wealth? You know, how do you define wealth? Just to go back to two points that it came to mind when you were talking, I think the first one is this connection between Bitcoiners uh, and the desire to improve health. It's like, if you're putting your time into a monetary tool, knowing that that money in 20 years is going to be worth way more than what it is today. And that's what I'm banking on, right? Long-term store of value. The next question is, well, I want to make sure I'm around in 20 years mm -hmm. and I want to make sure I'm healthy enough to have the freedom to do what I want with that purchasing power in 20 years. So it's almost like the idea of having such a low and patient, a low time preference and having patience with your money. The next thing is, well, I want to be around and healthy enough to take advantage of that. So I think they, they pair up very, very well. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of science, it's like the lack of m literacy around money and around science is the only way that the state has been able to manipulate people and lie to them and deceive them. So I think the solution there is not to tell people better things to do. It's to help people gain a, a desire to actually gain literacy in terms of understanding money from first principles and understanding the foundational elements of the scientific process, because it's actually not that complicated, right? Like I think it's in the interest of people manipulating the public through science, um, quote unquote science, um, to not to make science seem like this big, cumbersome, complex thing, and to not have people actually understand that science is the process of asking good questions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think to the average person, it's like if you learn money from first principles, um, and if you learn fundamental principles in the process of science, you actually are developing your immune system from being misled at the expense of your livelihood and your life, maybe. And I think there's an opening for people to actually have a willingness to do that now that I haven't seen before, at least in my own circle. Yeah. Um, so I'm still kind of developing like really what I want to be the role. I, uh, cause I kind of looked at it. It's like, okay, I'm taking a couple months off to be a full-time dad, fully present for the first two months of uh, my daughter's life. And it's like, I want to use that time to understand what do I actually, what is, 
what can I do that I enjoy that can actually give value to the world? And I keep landing on this idea of, you know, using old world language, a wealth consultant, new world languages. I want to help people understand health and understand money. I don't want to tell them what to do with their health or tell them what to do with their money. I want them to understand what is health and how do you engage with the process of health? What is money and how do you store your time in a form of money that doesn't steal from you? Um, and you know, I've always come back like the, the mental model I'm using right now is health is, or wealth is health plus money. Um, meaning that wealth is the accumulation, the long-term building wealth is the long-term accumulation of health credits and time credits. That's kind of the way I'm thinking of it right now. Um, and I'm still, you know, I went on a spaces the other day, um, toxic happy hour and just dropped, I've, I've been dropping the question, what is wealth to a lot of people? And I'm getting a lot of really cool answers actually from people in my business owners in my area and just in spaces. So I'm still kind of like, it's still a very raw, unrefined clay ball that I'm sort of hacking away over time. But I think, um, I think building wealth is the process of saving health credits and time credits. That's what I'm landed on right now. And um, because the way I look at it is like long-term savings, saving for the long-term is how I view health. Saving for the long-term is how I view um, building wealth long-term when it comes to money. Meaning that it's almost like the wealth piggy bank has two types of credits, health credits and monetary credits. Every time you do a behavior in your day-to-day -day life that enhances your health, you add one health credit in there. Anytime you, uh, trans anytime you sell fiat and purchase sats, you're putting a time credit in that wealth bank mm -hmm. and building wealth, sustainably building wealth is the process of gradually accumulating good health decisions and transferring money into transferring fiat into Bitcoin so that you can build the amount of wealth you have in that wealth bank over time with the accumulation of good decisions. Because if someone just came and they dumped a million credits in there overnight, because you haven't done the work to actually earn them and steward them and understand how to protect them, I think there's a high likelihood that you, that people lose them. Right. You look mm -hmm. at lottery winners are a prime example. They get a bunch of money given to them. They have no idea how to steward that wealth or to do good with it because it just came to them automatically and they usually go broke. Um, so I think wealth is like a process of building health credits and time credits, which is money. And that's my current definition of wealth. And I'd love to hear yours. Like what, what is wealth? Does wealth differ from, because one thing I've heard from people around the area was the difference between wealth being wealthy and rich, which I, I, I didn't think people would really have meaningful answers. Cause I, to me, I'd never really thought of this. Right. I used to think, mm. I used to think being rich was being wealthy. They were one and the same. And over time I've realized like, there's a lot of unhappy, unhealthy, rich people. So that can't be, you know, and to me, people I know that are wealthy don't actually have as much money as the really rich, rich people, but they just have a sense of joy and a deep sense of calm and ease about them in their lives. And it's like, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be the rich guy that, you know, spends all of his health credits just to get more time credits. It doesn't spend any time with his family and is miserable, but has a shitload of money. Mm -hmm. I want to be the person who just steadily over time makes good decisions with their health, saves a bit of money and ends up having the freedom to do whatever they want. Cause they have a body capable of doing that. And they have 
the time credits in the wealth bank that they don't have to worry about working tomorrow because they can take the day off and do something they love. So, right. yeah. so I guess those people make a distinction like rich is just having the time credits, just having money, whereas wealth is a more holistic approach where there's a, you know, psychological, emotional component to it, right? Where, or even a spiritual component to it. Perhaps that's the distinction. I, I remember when we, when we last spoke, I think we talked about this in the context of fitness and it was like, well, what, what is fitness or how did, you know, I think it's what is health. I started asking that question a lot. Okay. Well, I, cause I remember, I think part of my answer was like, well, it, it depends what you value as is always the case, you know, because let's say value is the thing that you're trying to move toward and fitness is by definition, how you make yourself congruent to that thing, right? How you move toward it more expediently. And so fitness isn't just being jacked. It depends on what, what your goal is, what you value. Right. So if, if let's say if fitness to you has nothing to do with uh, physical strength, because what you're trying to become fit for is, you know, the hardest intellectual task, let's say you want to be an astrophysicist, you know, and you, all you're trying to do, and, but you're, you're considering the physiological component of it, but to you, maybe it's like, well, you know, how do I make sure my back is okay sitting at a desk 10 hours a day? And how do right. I make sure that like, I can hold my pencil for this many hours and how can I make sure my brain is optimized? And maybe, you know, that means something, but it doesn't mean, you know, going to the gym for two hours a day and doing heavy squats and deadlifts and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's just, it's so highly dependent on, on, on what you value most and what you're trying to become or move towards. But you can't In opt out of the biological element. I would say to that, it's like, I agree that it depends what you choose to prioritize, but you cannot opt out of the physical reality that your biology has requirements. And if you don't meet those, you're going to have a tough time. Well, that, yeah, well, that's what I mean. Right. So he's just, he's just trying to determine what the biological requirements are for his goal. Right. Right. And so maybe he ends up still being, maybe they're just like a, a scrawny, you know, little physicist, but maybe that's what optimizes for what their goal is, which is being the best right. damn physicist they can be in, in terms of wealth. Um, I don't know. It would, wouldn't, it's hard for me to think about it in, in any other terms than, you know, the, the capacity or the ability or the optionality to access things that are of the greatest meaning to you, you know? And so if you, you know, let's use an extreme example, which I've often used on the podcast, but I think about the religious ascetic, right? Of which there are many examples. And, you know, one I'm thinking about, I think his name is Father Seraphim Rose. He's an American uh, who was under the tutelage of uh, Alan Watts for a while, but became an Orthodox uh, Christian and um, has written several books, you know, quite interesting. But in any case, he ended up living in like a literal wood shack, I think in California and died in, in his 40s from some, you know, treatable uh, health condition, which he just didn't treat. And at least according to these sort of people, they would say that they require nothing else but their relationship with God effectively. And that that is so fulfilling and so sustaining, at least on a spiritual level, if not always a physical one, um, that they have no motivation or inspiration to pursue any greater fulfillment or any greater value or, or any other experience. And so what is wealth to them? Well, to them, wealth is their relationship with God, right? Their access to whatever 
they experience that force to be. Um, and so would we call them wealthy? I mean, I think we kind of have to, I think because it's a subjective determination, right? And so he would say, like, I, I'm the wealthiest person in the world. And I would have to take him at his word, you know? So it's up. I, and I think that's because it's, he had full access to the thing that was most meaningful to him. Right. And so I think that's how we are. We're probably supposed to, like you determine, you characterized it, I think in a similar way, it's just that you value different things, you know? So you want to have a healthy body and mind and sufficient financial capability to, you know, enjoy some of the uh, nice things of life, whether it's time in nature or time with family or, you know, time with friends, sports, you want to be able to engage in, in sports, you know, uh, longer into your life, that kind of thing, because those are the, the places from which you derive sustaining meaning, fulfillment, joy, peace, you know, all of those things. So I think it's, I guess my answer is like, whatever it is that delivers those things to you, your access, whatever determines your access to them, right? Whatever determines your access to the type of peace, joy, you know, meaning that you value the most, your your relative uh, deprivation or your, your relative abundance of those things will determine how wealthy you perceive yourself to be. And, um, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of interesting questions there, like, well, is there a, is there an ought there, right? Like, obviously, the religious types, you know, an ascetic like the one I was referring to, he would probably assert that his approach is the, you know, the most valid or the most true, like, you shouldn't constitute, you shouldn't rely on worldly experiences and worldly uh, objects to derive that sense of meaning, or joy or peace from right? It should be if, you know, it should be almost entirely within your control. So you can access it no matter what your circumstance is. If you're in a concentration camp, if you're on a mountain in California, if you're in a city, you know, if you're in New York and, you know, the, a lot of the kind of religious or spiritual traditions probably echo something similar to that. And so, you know, for all of us, it's about finding, well, what, what's the truth for ourselves? Is, is that true? Like, is it, should everyone become an ascetic? And I mean, on the face that sounds like an absurd question. And I, I kind of think it is like, I, I don't think that's the answer, but I think it's a helpful extreme case to frame up the question to help you think about it better. Like what really are the things that I should value the most because I get the most from them, you know, the most fulfillment, the most value, the most joy, the most peace, whatever those things are that I deem to be, you know, the most valuable experiences that I can have right? Is it, is it more important for me to have access to that type of peace and joy than the ability to fly to Tuscany for two weeks and eat amazing food and smell amazing smells and look at beautiful landscapes? Um, so, but the answer to your question, I guess, is wealth is whatever. I, I think it comes back to, to what degree you believe, or you have the, the capability or the capacity to access whatever it is those things are that you deem most meaningful or valuable. Yeah, that was a, that was really well said. And I like how the other thing too was wealth is not having the things necessarily that you desire. It's having the things that enable you access to the thing because we don't actually want money. 
right? Mm -hmm. We want the right. things that money will offer us access to. So I think that's a really, um, really interesting point. And I think when I ask people how they define wealth, um, it's never to impose my definition. I'll never, I never, I had to really recognize, be like, am I asking this so that I can just tell people what mine is and hear the reaction? Mm -hmm. um, and I think just like when I ask people their definition of health, I'm never actually trying to impose my perspective on them or say, you should think about it in this way. It's more, I wonder how everyone, and to your point, I think when people do say, what is it to be wealthy? I think you're right. Really what you're asking them is what do you, what do you value most? Mm -hmm. um, and everyone should have a different answer, right? And there's no right or wrong answers. Who are we to say that other people should have a different answer? I think why I'm asking that question is I want to get tons of answers to see if, to see if there's common threads. And for me, the common thread so far, really for a lot of people has been health, because I think without a sense of comfort and, um, you know, being out of intense pain, few people can experience like joy uh, and a desire to enjoy the present moment, which I think is this common thread that I've noticed. Um, I guess one question I have for you is what, it, what, it, what does John Vallis value most? If, if well, being wealthy is having access to the things you value most, what does being wealthy for you mean right now with that sort of underlying definition in mind? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's always going to be something you continue to get greater clarity on. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's something you necessarily arrive at, if for no other reason that your environment is always changing. So it always has to be kind of. And you're changing. Tweaked. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, for me, it's increasingly those kind of eternal principles, those in, intangibles, you know, and so call it truth, freedom, love. Like those are the things that when I think about them, contemplate them, do my best to invite them into my life they are obviously the most sustaining, meaningful things. And, you know, there's obviously other concerns, right? Putting a roof over your head and that kind of stuff. But when we're talking about like the most motivating things, you know, all those things end up being subordinate to those things, or at least that's, that would be ideal to be able to focus on, on those things most. And I think, you know, you kind of have to have the faith that actually doing that in reverse, like, determining to the best that you can. And I think this is part of what the religious or spiritual enterprises has been all about for the you know entirety of human history is trying to determine what the highest value is. Like what is the most truthful slash valuable slash meaningful thing that can help orient us in this reality that we find ourselves in. And of course, lots of speculation, lots of uh, arguments around those things. But I think the, the reason why there's an element of faith is because you have to act them into existence, right? You, you can't just wait for them. You can't put all the subordinate things in place first. I think you have to, you know, kind of go to the top of the pyramid first and say, I'm going to subordinate myself to these values and principles, let's say, insofar as it means that I'm actually going to try to act them out instead of acting out whatever my transient or impulsive desires might be. I'm going to try to place those things above them. And I'm going to let, I'm going to somewhat passively allow that to determine how, what behavior I engage in and what, what unfolds in my life as a result. 
So that's part of the answer. I mean, I love good food and amazing environments and all that kind of stuff too, right? And I love feeling strong and, and vital and all that kind of stuff. So like you, spending time in nature, eating good food with people that you trust and know and love and respect, like that is also way up there. But I think the the eternal so-called divine, if you like, principles have to be at the top because they are what infuses everything below it with the, the proper perspective or orientation. And, you know, then there's the, the kind of tricky matter of figuring out how, how you constitute a life in that way. You know, as human beings, we kind of have one foot in the, the eternal and spiritual realm and one foot in the animalistic and, and physical realm, right? I mean, that's kind of our, our dualistic circumstance. And we have to figure out how we marry the two to optimal effect. And again, I think a lot of the, you know, religious writings over, over and spiritual writings over all of our history have been grappling with that tension and perhaps it's not a tension at all perhaps it's a it's a harmony we just have to to find it and i you know i lean towards that interpretation but um you know life is complex and we find ourselves in a crazy fiat world and so we have to deal with uh a lot of things that maybe in a future uh era they don't have to deal with or you know there's there's a lot of variables involved but i, I do think we get to that future place that we often discuss in Bitcoin land by using Bitcoin, not only as a means for, you know, as, as a money, but as we've been discussing as a means for kind of, uh, developing a, a better feedback loop for capitulating a perspective that allows us to be and become those people that actually bring about that, that future that we often discuss. And, uh, yeah, and I, the last point I would say, I guess, is you know, you you mentioned clarity before. I think right at the beginning, you said you know, like the things that you're doing now, you you've never had so much clarity, and that feels really good. I mean, that's been my perspective for a long time, and I think it makes sense in terms that you know, if you're one of the highest objectives you have or values is the pursuit of truth, then it it. I think it follows quite easily that you want to put yourself in the position to be able to discern it as best as possible, right? When you confront it or on your search for it. And that means I think you have to put your body mind system in the best place possible to, to do that. And I think clarity is one of the words we use to describe that state, you know, like the more clear minded you are, I think again, definitionally, the more you're able to discern or perceive truth, and then you can avail of whatever benefits it may it may uh, may have or entail or provide you. And so, as far as it comes down to like brass tacks, like routines and stuff, for a long time, my approach has not been like any sort of physiological um, like goal, like a bench press or a squat or body mass index or anything like that. It's it's been experimenting with myself to try to determine what actions I can take that give me the clarity, you know, maximize or optimize for clarity because that, you know, because that is directly linked to truth, which is one of the highest principles that that's motivating me. And, you know, that in, it involves all the stuff that um, we often talk about these days, like good sleep and the proper diet and a certain exercise regime and time in nature and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I find that it's interesting and perhaps not surprising that if you optimize for 
that type of clarity, the body that de is delivered to you as a result is like pretty decent. You know, like maybe you're not at the extreme of strength. Maybe you're not at the extreme of mobility. Maybe you're not at the extreme of athletic performance, but if you're doing the things that optimize for mental clarity, emotional stability, you know, intellectual capacity, all those things, the body that follows or, or that helps produce that is like a vital, strong, limber, youthful sort of body. And then the only other element that you attach to that is a certain level of acceptance, right? It's like, do you accept that outcome, right? Do you accept that you're not going to be like super jacked and, and bench press 350 pounds or whatever? And for me, like the answer is obviously yes, you know, because that's, that's not that valuable or important to me to like, just write a number in my workout book or, or be able to say that I can bench press a certain amount. What's important to me is that I've done, you know, most of the things in my power to put myself in a, you know, um, psychological or mental perspective that allows me to discern the things that are most valuable, which is, you know, the, the principles that I was referred to before. So I don't know if that answers your question or if it was a bit verbose, but that's the way I think about my own wealth and health. It does answer the question and more. I think it's, it's, it's an unanswerable question and it's a dynamically, it should be, I think, a dynamically changing answer. Uh, like we said, if we're changing, if the world is changing, I think the way we have to think about wealth and health and money um, needs to change as well. And I think the beauty about Bitcoin is that it actually becomes a constant that you can isolate as a variable that doesn't need to actually change. Mm. Right. And so you have this constant. And I think that's where the impact of Bitcoin on people's lives comes from. Right. You have this ocean of chaos, which is life, which is biology, which is all these things. And then you have this anchor that is unchanging and that you can always look to for safety because you know it's not going to change. There will mm -hmm. only be 21 million. No one is going to manipulate that. You have control over making sure that that is a fundamental truth in your life. You can verify it. And so I think that's where the immovable object actually nudges everything around it to change. And I think it's doing that to the world, mm -hmm. like, you know, at all levels, collective level, individual level. Um, but when you were talking there, you know, back to the point that you said before, where it's like wealth is not actually the thing you want. It's the having the things that allow you to achieve the thing you desire, which, you know, truth, freedom, all these virtues. And I think freedom, um, freedom is a big one for me. Because I, you know, I've always felt that being in good health gives me the freedom to engage in whatever activities or things I want to do. Um, and having money saved gives me the freedom to not be limited by the money I have to do the things I want as well. Now, it's very well possible to want the wrong things and get everything you want and be unhappy. So the clarity of knowing what matters most, I think, is hierarchically the most important thing. And uh, I saw something a couple of days ago, which I thought was really interesting. Um, someone on Twitter wrote, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. It's the ability to subordinate yourself to truth. Mm. And I thought that was really profound because I think if you had asked me before that, what is freedom? I would have said freedom is the freedom to do whatever I want. Now, whatever I want still has to be guided by these higher virtues of knowing like what is worth wanting to live a life well lived. And that's mm. like a really hard question that requires a lot of time to think about. And I think the, the fiat loop is that if your time's constantly being stolen, you have uh, exponentially less time to care for yourself and to learn about what matters, right? You're like literally just trying to not drown 
that treading water is a higher priority than thinking like, how do I get out of the pool? And I think with Bitcoiners, they have this immutable truth that is their time cannot be debased anymore. So relative to everyone else, they're gaining more and more time to do what they want with that time. And I think the logical thing to me is, well, the first thing to do with your time is to learn how to care for yourself so that you're not as reliant on the systems that are misleading us. And you can take, you know, once you take ownership for your money, it's not really a stretch to take ownership of your well-being. And I think the thing that's refreshing to me is that in the old world of medicine, it's so complicated that it's can be overwhelming, right? Like keeping up with all the research, all the papers, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and in the new world about just understanding the simple fundamentals and doing like knowing, knowing there's a difference between like knowing, understanding and applying, right? And it gets more difficult. Um, but what you need to know and understand when it comes to taking care of yourself is actually not very complex or um, hard, to, hard to grasp, right? Like a 12 year old can. Mm -hmm. The harder part is applying it in a world that actually nudges you away from, from doing those things. Um, and I think, it's, I think what's refreshing is when I talk to Bitcoiners about health and when Tash and I talk on the podcast, it's like we're coming with a lot of work being done under the hood to understand these things so that we can talk about it in, in simple terms. We can distill the simple essence that is worth sharing as a cheat code instead of, you know, going into all the complex nuance that actually doesn't matter, right? Like I yeah. really think of understanding as like this tree of understanding. I think this was something that Elon wrote about um, where what really matters is the soil and the roots and the trunk. And as you get out towards the leaves, you get into things that are less fundamental and more context specific. So when we talk about the leaves, it's like the most context specific things, right? You should eat this vegetable or you should, you know, meat is good, vegetables are good, you know, whatever. But then when you get down to like the trunk, it's like, well, real food is good, mm -hmm. which makes meat good and vegetables good if they're, if they come from a certain way. So by focusing on the trunk, you can really transcend a lot of the arguments people get in, which are actually about things that don't matter as much. Yeah. And I think the refreshing thing is that health is incredibly simple and only the people who protect their time with sound money will have the time to get to that state where they understand, you know, I've come to understand health is a process. And what you said about not caring about how much you bench press indicates that you're not really after a desk. You're not trying to get somewhere. You're trying to stay on the right path to continue engaging with the process of better understanding how to optimize your body so that you can increase your effectiveness at achieving or, or approximating truth in your life. Mm -hmm. So I think this, you know, I think there's a big similarity between learning, understanding Bitcoin and understanding health are like very, I see a lot of parallels because it's a process, not a destination. And it's something that you just have to engage with in a low time preference way. Um, and it's almost chicken or the egg sometimes where it's like, well, what is it people putting their money into Bitcoin and then having the time to engage with health? Or is it people engaging with health and realizing, oh, geez, I got to take some responsibility for my money. I think it's there's no one way, but I think they're like a really big match for each other, I think, yeah. in terms of mindset. And um, yeah, I think everyone should define wealth for themselves. Absolutely. And I don't think anyone, and I think it just underneath that requires a lot of thinking about what matters, like you say. And um, yeah, that's kind of some new, some new stuff for me to think about based on what you said. I, it seems to me like one of the things that Bitcoin is doing to people is just simplifying things. You know, we, the, the fiat era, yeah. one of the attributes of it might be 
that it's unnecessarily complex in so many different ways. Um, you know, because of the uncertainty it generates and the complexity that it has to try to account for that uncertainty and, you know, big house of cards, basically. And what Bitcoin is is causing people to do is just like distill things down into, you know, much simpler forms. And it, it means you can do away with all of the all of that, a lot of that complexity and, and the institutions that's, you know, uh, gatekeep that complexity and presume to have a certain authority based on that complexity. You can just be like, nope. Don't need yeah. it. And you said before that, like, yeah, you said, you know, uh, the current culture, the fiat paradigm kind of nudges people towards ill health. I'd say it more than nudges people. It, you know, locks them thrusts in almost. Them. <laughs> yeah, it thrusts them because like you can't even buy, you know, someone people have made this um, uh, observation recently. And it, I think it's an apt one. And not that I'm against, you know, the drug problem is complex and <laughs> the drug problem needs a better approach. And experimentation is going to be part of that. And maybe safe injection sites and access to help to, you know, quality untainted drugs is an aspect of that. Like that's a totally different conversation, but the, but it, the fact remains, you can go in Vancouver and buy heroin, but you can't buy raw milk. Like what the fuck is going on with that? That's, that's absurd. Right. And so there's all these absurd regulations and all these absurd yeah. subsidies and incentives and all this stuff. That means you go into the grocery store and you're confronted with 95% of things that are, you know, destructive or degenerative to your health and 5% that are conducive to health. And, you know, the 5% is more expensive because they don't receive the same subsidies because they're not able to be produced in a, you know, mass market industrial food sort of way, like all the reasons, right? And avocados don't have a marketing budget. So right, tell exactly. you to buy them. right. So you're, you're, Exactly. So everything is conspiring against you to, be, and that, that doesn't let you off the hook. Obviously, we still each have a responsibility to do that, but it's just saying that the current paradigm as it is, largely as a result of fiat, has just completely directed people in a in a direction that's um, not conducive to their health. And you know, it, to to me, it's it's quite simple, and this ties into what how we were defining wealth. How do you want to feel? And that's maybe that that's not a super easy thing to determine because so many people have been conditioned to want to look like or be or whatever somebody else, a model, the person on the advertisement, whatever. So you have so many people attempting to conform to an image of somebody else rather than a feeling for themselves. But if you can determine how you want to feel, then all you just do is you run experiments. How does eating these vegetables make me feel? Does it does it make me feel the way I want to feel? Yes, no, to what degree? Does eating mostly meat make me feel the way I want to feel? Yes, no, to what degree? Does using supplements, does eating chocolate, does drinking beer, right? Yes, no, to what degree? And it doesn't take long before you're able to triangulate on a set of behaviors, both food consumption and fitness and all the stuff that we were alluding to before, where you're like, oh, these group of things allow me to feel the way I want to feel. And maybe again, like I'm obviously neither of us are here to impose anyone anything on anyone. Like if you, if the way you want to feel results in you being 300 pounds and not being that active, I'm, I say, go for it. You know, you, you obviously have to go into that eyes wide open. You have to realize that there's going to be certain consequences of pursuing that feeling. Maybe longevity is one, maybe, you know, you're going to have health problems sooner, all that kind of stuff. But if you know that and you still say, well, this is the way I want to feel. This is what wealth is to me. These, this is how I access the things that are most meaningful to me. 
knock yourself out. I don't, I don't give a shit, you right. know, that, cause there is no, there is no like I, ideal healthiness, let's say, you know, it's all as, as you, as we both said, it's subjective. So, and, and again, like this is, as you know, I'm sure, but in the health space and, and I've been in, you know, interested in it for most of my life, you know, there's so many books, diets, personalities, all this kind of stuff that are saying, this is right. That is right. This is right. That is right. When it's again, in, in keeping with, you know, Bitcoin really simplifying things, it's like, again, how do you want to feel, figure that out, you know? And then, and this is a, both a physiological and a spiritual process, as we were saying, like, what is it that you want to have animate your perspective the most? Do the work to figure that out and then just experiment, experiment with it, with everything and see how much the things you experiment with permit you access to how you want to feel. And then just keep doing that and you'll be at the place you want to be. Yeah. And the one asterisk I would put there is, you know, if someone said, I want to feel pleasure 24 seven, 365. Everyone, right? baby, go for it. Yeah, yeah. So like technically, if you want to feel great, if you want to feel blissed out and high as fuck all day long, you know, you can eat McDonald's, do all the drugs. Uh, and I think zooming out sometimes is the thing people miss out on, right? Like 10 minutes of mouth pleasure, eating the whole cake, five hours of misery in terms of the consequences of eating that full cake. So I think sometimes we just need to zoom out and make sure that we understand that there's always, it's almost like there's no biological free lunch. I love that that is like a fundamental principle in my brain where it's like, if I consume this drug, I'm going to get, you know, if I consume this coffee, I'm going to have a high. If mm -hmm. I smoke this cannabis, if I do whatever, if I eat this sugary thing, I'm going to have a period of, of enhanced pleasure. But I have to go into that and make the mindful choice, knowing that there's always going to be the other side of the pendulum. Like, is this good thing? knowing that I've kind of done a debrief and said to myself, okay, last time I did this, I felt great for an hour and I felt terrible for 10. So is this now worth, um, is this thing for pleasure now worth, worth it knowing that in the long run, I'm going to, this is the consequence of it. And I think sometimes it's easy to skip over. It's like, I think pain is just a series of lessons. And it's actually not about never experiencing pain. It's about paying attention enough so that you don't have to repeat the same lessons over and over. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big thing with health, where if you're not actually paying attention, like listening to what your body's telling you, if all pain is a call from your body for change because something is not going well, um, the more we ignore it and cover it up. And I think the disease care world specializes in the high time preference effort of eliminating pain at all costs so I can feel better this moment. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And I think that's what's gotten us off track because it's just doesn't align with biology. And to what you said about before with the doctors and, you know, saying, trust us, it's like the actual role of a doctor was supposed to be the person you go to so they can get informed so that they can inform you about the decision you're about to make. Like the decision about what you do with your body was never designed to be your doctor's. Your doctor was there as a resource to inform you and give you all the information so that you can make a wise choice for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, I think part of the sadness, looking back at this, this COVID fever that we went through, is the trust that was decimated in the world of medicine, unfortunately, because doctors went from being the people who inform you about what the what the choice you're about to make is to the person who was basically coercing you to do something, even if it didn't yeah. feel good. 
And like we said at the start, it's like the less you know about something, the more vulnerable you are to having someone else tell you what you should do. Mm-hmm. And even if that's a good person working with, you know, if they're working within a shitty system or they're under duress because their salary depends on them telling you a certain thing because of higher forces. If you don't understand it and you have to believe these people, if these people are being coerced, then by de facto, you're collateral damage. And so I think mm-hmm. the more you know about a topic, the less vulnerable you are from t- to being misled by others. And I think in health and money, oh. that is the most obvious for me and is the most urgent call for people to take more responsibility in their lives to protect themselves and to be better informed. And I think the beauty is it's actually way simpler when you really start to learn about how to take care of yourself. It's literally just a process of trial and error and paying attention to the lessons that you get, paying attention to the data coming in, right? People do trial and error all the time, but if you're trying random shit and you're not actually taking the time to understand what's working and what isn't, and how do I define working and not working? then you just kind of are trying a bunch of random stuff, but you never actually get a cohesive sense of truth about, okay, this is the direction I want to go in because I you know, did this, got this result, decided, do I want to keep doing that? Yes, keep doing it. No, try something different until something works and then pursue that. And I think it's, you know, if people just took more, had more confidence that they could engage with the process of trial and error, because it's not that hard. And every single habit you do each day is an opportunity to try something different and just to pay attention to how that actually, what result it gives you. That's really the fundamental challenge is people paying attention, right? And in a world that revolves where we've monetized distraction, it's very hard to actually be present, focus and get traction. Um, and so defending yourself from distraction might be like the biggest gatekeeper to starting to engage with the process of health. And I think that's the hardest thing today. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, but I would say, you know, one of the things that inhibits that is you have to be motivated to do so. And I, I think it's telling that we live in a world today where, and I think this is wrapped up in the diseases of despair epidemic, the substance abuse epidemic, the hopelessness that we we're referring to before. And for most people, it's probably not, um, you know, pathological, well, it's pathological, but it's not in a crisis mode, right? I'm not talking about the people that are overdosing on this, you know, on the street on, for from drugs or the people that are on all sorts of antidepressants. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, kind of your average person who betrays a lot, you know, a, a, a hopeless, a hopelessness by not having the motivation to do what you just described, because you're right. It, it is simple, right? It doesn't take that much observation time or anything it does require motivation you know and back to the point i was making when i say you know how do you want to feel i don't just mean the transient mouth pleasure from the chocolate bar i mean that that encapsulates absolutely everything so right accounting for both the transient mouth mouth pleasure and whatever guilt or lack thereof you may feel from having eaten it and whatever you know refractory physiological effect you get from the insulin dump and the sugar high and all that kind of stuff all taken together, how do you want to feel like, right. and that's, it's, that's why that that's the primary task is determining that. But, you know, to this point, you have to be motivated to do so. And I think so few people are, and that betrays like effectively a, a type of hopelessness, a lack of self-worth, a lack of self-love, all of those things, because otherwise you would be working on the answer to that question. And then you'd be working on the experimentation that allows you to become increasingly coherent or congruent with it. But again, the, the sign of our times, you know, maybe it's, 
you know, it's probably deeper than fiat, but I would say fiat has a massive influence on it, is that it's not only the distractions that you were just alluding to, which just, you know, makes people, it causes it, people to have a difficulty in orienting themselves properly in the world, but the, the, the despair that it inculcates in people or the, the lack of vision, lack of hopeful vision for the future that it robs from people has dramatically uh, demotivated them from engaging in that process, which only mm. worsens this, the circumstance even, even further. I agree with everything you said. And I think the, you know, I was going to ask you, what do you think is causing this lack of motivation? And you, you answered it, um, at least one element of it. And I think, cause one of my favorite models from this is, uh, in the world of behavior, cause I think health is largely about behavior design. How do we design? I believe behaviors can be designed into people's lives if they understand the ingredients. Like if you give someone a recipe to upload a behavior into their lives, it's actually way easier to successfully accomplish that than if you just say, Oh, do this, but you don't give them an actual framework to, to implement it. The application is the hardest part. And BJ Fogg has a really great framework for, um, the, for a behavior model, which is B equals MAP behavior equals motivation times ability times prompt. And if you're missing any of those three elements, the behavior doesn't occur. Mm -hmm. If you're not motivated, then nothing happens. And part of me always thinks to myself, it's like, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to feel like shit today. Like mm -hmm. no one likes feeling terrible. I think part of the motivation not being high is the available, the availability and accessibility of things that reduce pain. Cause I think pain is a very good motivator. Maybe, you know, pain may be the ultimate motivator. It might be what drives all human behaviors. And I think one thing I tell people sometimes that are looking for help with their health is like the first thing that you can do is recognize next time you're uncomfortable and what your first instinct to do is. Cause if you don't pull out your phone, if you don't consume the drug, if you don't, you know, do anything that makes you feel better at a point in time where you experience discomfort, you will probably be way more motivated to actually solve the source of that discomfort compared to if you just cover it up with something. Right. And I think that is such an apt parallel to the world of fiat where like any financial pain that gets experienced, there's an instant knee jerk reaction to try and solve it with a high time preference without any understanding actually of second, third, fourth order effects or consequences. It's like, it's a, the problem right now has been averted. And if we optimally orient only around pain without acknowledging the long-term consequences of what we do to get rid of the pain, we add more entropy in the system and more confusion. And so mm -hmm. I think for, you know, and, and the pain relief thing is like, I think the most obvious example of that is heroin addicts, right? Like life is so painful that I must escape and I'm going to inject this into my body to get slight relief for a short period of time, knowing it's probably going to kill me, but the pain I'm in right now is literally worse than death. So it's a risk I'm deeming appropriate. Mm -hmm. But I think the average person, I mean, for me, if I recognize this in myself, going on Twitter is a source of pain relief. Yeah, um, totally. And so I think it's, you know, the more I get comfortable sitting with discomfort and being able to kind of like be there and acknowledge it, the more I'm motivated to then engage with the behavior that actually solves the problem. And so behavior equals motivation, ability, and prompt, you know, 
people underestimate what I would say with that, just the last point with that is people underestimate the power of a prompt, meaning that, you know, if starting with like, I often tell people just go on a 30 minute walk every day. That's a good initial, that's a good first step. And you know what, if 30 minutes is too much, go for a five minute walk without your phone. You would not believe how difficult it is for some people to remember to go for a five minute walk every day. Mm. And what is often the missing ingredient is a prompt. And the minute they schedule it and have an alarm for it, they do it. And so like anyone can go on a walk. A lot of people are motivated to go on a walk because they know it's good for them. And the amount of people that didn't do it before I started to really emphasize the prompt was astounding. And so, you know, to anyone listening in your own life, if you want to pick a behavior to improve your health, health is a choice. It's literally making a better choice in the next 10 minutes for something you're going to do or not do for your well-being. And a walk is a great start. Uh, you have the ability to, if you have the ability to walk and you're motivated, set a reminder for yourself and you'd be surprised how effective that can be. So that was my yeah. last little nugget with that. Well, I'll, I'll finish with this because I got to shoot in like two minutes, but yep. the, and we'll obviously do this again and continue the conversation. But I do think, you know, kind of the crux, you, let's consider the heroin addict, right? Back to this notion that we have one foot in the physical and one foot in the spiritual. That person is is pursuing that physical and obviously there's an emotional component to it, but the gratification, right? The 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 erasing of that pain, however you want to characterize it, to such an extent, they're they're pursuing something that is degenerative or destructive to their body. And what other indication do you need that that value back to that thing, the, the discussion about like, which values are you elevating the most and, and trying to become congruent with? What better proof is there that those are the wrong ones? Right? And so you, you could, you could almost simplify it and say, the values which when you attempt to unify with them, become congruent with them, subordinate yourself to them, invite them into your life, again, however we want to you know, say that lead to integration, integration within yourself, your relationships, your family, the broader society, the natural world, all of that stuff are probably more true than the ones which when you attempt to pursue them, unify with them, um, become congruent with them, destroy your body, destroy your relationships, destroy the social structure, destroy the natural world. Right. And so we all we got to do is look and say, well, the heroin addict is obviously pursuing, at least among other things, gratification, just pure pleasure. Right. And it's a self it, it, there's a very selfish, maybe selfishness is the primary attribute of, of doing so. And then in, in the other virtues, let's say, to what extent do they represent a selfless approach or orientation to things? And so maybe it's the case that the the things that are pursued so narrowly in such a selfish way end up being those that are, are the most degenerative to everything self community world whereas the, the virtues that when they're acted out they take on a selfless character are actually the things that are most integrative to self relationships world and if that is true or to the extent that it's true should we not say that they are the the the, the values principles or virtues that are um, motivating that behavior, should we not say that they are more true, therefore, than the ones that are having a destructive effect? And I guess I, my assertion would be that, the, yes, they are more true for that reason. Yeah. And I think a good place for us to pick up next time. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll, we'll is, that's a, that's it, a longer one. So we'll have to take yeah, yeah, yeah. it up I, next I, time. The, the one thing I would say is my perspective right now is that being healthy requires us to be selfish. 
but also that we need to redefine what selfish means in order to really see that. So maybe that's a good one to pick up next time. Cause I think There's health a lot of- is a selfish act and being selfish is actually what's best for the whole, but we got to refine the definition. There's a lot of, of nuance there. So there that, that we'll put a, we'll put a pin in that. And that'll be the, the thing we start with next time. Um, Nick, always great to chat, man. Great to see you again. Um, did you want to direct people anywhere if they want to hear more from you before we shut it down? No, I'm nobody caribou on Twitter. Uh, Jedi fam is the podcast it's on fountain value for value. And uh, thanks for taking the time, John, and for this conversation and to everyone listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your attention and take care of yourselves. Awesome. All right, brother. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Ciao. See ya.